0: Welcome to part two and the conclusion of The Adventure of the Devil's Foot by Arthur Conan Doyle, A Sherlock Holmes Adventure. I may have commented upon my friend's power of mental detachment, but never have I wondered at it more than upon that spring morning in Cornwall, when for two hours he discoursed upon celts, arrowheads, and shards as lightly as if no sinister mystery were waiting for his solution. "'It was not until we had returned in the afternoon to our cottage "'that we found a visitor awaiting us, "'who soon brought our minds back to the matter in hand. "'Neither of us needed to be told who that visitor was. "'The huge body, the craggy and deeply seamed face "'with the fierce eyes and hawk-like nose, "'the grizzled hair which nearly brushed our cottage ceiling, "'the beard, golden at the fringes and white near the lips, "'save for the nicotine stain from his perpetual cigar.' All these were well known in London, as in Africa, and could only be associated with the tremendous personality of Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion hunter and explorer. We had heard of his presence in the district, and had once or twice caught sight of his tall figure upon the moorland paths. He made no advances to us, however, nor would we have dreamed of doing so to him as it was well known that it was his love of seclusion which caused him to spend the greater part of the intervals between his journeys in a small bungalow buried in the lonely wood of beauchamp Arriance. Here, amid his books and his maps, he lived an absolutely lonely life, attending to his own simple wants and paying little apparent heed to the affairs of his neighbors. It was a surprise to me, therefore, to hear him asking Holmes in an eager voice, whether he had made any advance in his reconstruction of this mysterious episode. "'The county police are utterly at fault,' said he. "'But perhaps your wider experience has suggested some conceivable explanation. "'My only claim to being taken into your confidence "'is that during my many residences here "'I have come to know this family of Tregenis very well. "'Upon my Cornish mother's side, I could call them cousins, "'and their strange fate has naturally been a great shock to me.' I may tell you that I'd got as far as Plymouth upon my way to Africa, but the news reached me this morning, and I came straight back again to help in the inquiry. Holmes raised his eyebrows. Did you lose your boat through it? I will take the next. Dear me, that is friendship indeed. I'd tell you they were relatives. Quite so. Cousins of your mother. Was your baggage aboard the ship? Some of it, but the main part at the hotel. I see. "'but surely this event could not have found its way "'into the Plymouth Morning Papers. "'No, sir, I had a telegram. "'Might I ask from whom?' "'A shadow passed over the gaunt face of the explorer. "'You are very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes.' "'It's my business.' "'With an effort, Dr. Sterndale recovered his ruffled composure. "'I have no objection to telling you,' he said. "'It was Mr. Roundhay.' the vicar, who sent me the telegram which recalled me. Thank you, said Holmes. I must say in answer to your original question, but I have not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but that I have every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature to say more. Perhaps you would not mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction. No, I can hardly answer that. "'then I've wasted my time and need not prolong my visit.' "'The famous doctor strode out of our cottage in considerable ill-humor, "'and within five minutes Holmes had followed him. "'I saw him no more until the evening, "'when he returned with a slow step and haggard face, "'which assured me that he had made no great progress with his investigation. "'He glanced at a telegram which awaited him and threw it into the grate. "'From the Plymouth Hotel, Watson,' he said. "'I learned the name of it from the vicar.' "'and I wired to make certain that Dr. Leon Sterndale's account was true. "'It appears that he did indeed spend last night there, "'and that he has actually allowed some of his baggage to go on to Africa, "'while he returned to be present at this investigation. "'What do you make of that, Watson?' "'He is deeply interested.' "'Deeply interested, yes. "'There's a thread here which we had not yet grasped, "'and which might lead us through the tangle. "'Cheer up, Watson.' "'for I'm very sure that our material has not yet all come to hand. "'When it does, we may soon leave our difficulties behind us.' "'Little did I think how soon the words of Holmes would be realized, "'or how strange and sinister would be that new development "'which had opened up an entirely fresh line of investigation. "'I was shaving at my window in the morning "'when I heard the rattle of hooves, "'and looking up, saw a dog-cart coming at a gallop down the road. "'It pulled up at our door,' and our friend, the vicar, sprang from it and rushed up our garden path. Holmes was already dressed, and we hastened down to meet him. Our visitor was so excited that he could hardly articulate, but at last, in gasps and bursts, his tragic story came out of him. "'We're devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes. My poor parish is devil-ridden!' he cried. "'Satan himself is loose in it. We're given over to his hands.' He danced about in his agitation, a ludicrous object if it were not for his ashy face and startled eyes. Finally, he shot out his terrible news. Mr. Mortimer Targenis died during the night, and with exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family. Holmes sprang to his feet, all energy, in an instant. "'Can you fit us both into your dog cart?' "'Yes, I can. Then, Watson, we will have to postpone our breakfast.' Mr. Roundhay, we are entirely at your disposal. Hurry, hurry, before things get disarranged. The lodger occupied two rooms at the vicarage, which were in an angle by themselves, the one above the other. Below was a large sitting room, above his bedroom. They looked out upon a croquet lawn which came up to the windows. We had arrived before the doctor or the police, so that everything was absolutely undisturbed. Let me describe exactly the scene as we saw it upon that misty March morning. It has left an impression which can never be effaced from my mind. The atmosphere of the room was of a horrible and depressing stuffiness. The servant that had first entered had thrown up the window, or it would have been even more intolerable. This might partly be due to the fact that a lamp stood flaring and smoking on the center table. Beside it sat the dead man, leaning back in his chair, his thin beard projecting. His spectacles pushed up to his forehead, and his lean, dark face turned towards the window and twisted into the same distortion of terror which had marked the features of his dead sister. His limbs were convulsed, and his fingers contorted, as though he had died in a very paroxysm of fear. He was fully clothed, though there were signs that his dressing had been done in a hurry." One realized the red-hot energy which underlay Holmes's phlegmatic exterior when one saw the sudden change which came over him from the moment that he entered the fatal apartment. In an instant he was tense and alert, his eyes shining, his face set, his limbs quivering with eager activity. He was out on the lawn, in through the window, round the room, and up to the bedroom, for all the world like a dashing foxhound drawing a cover. In the bedroom he made a rapid cast around, and ended by throwing open the window, which appeared to give him some fresh cause for excitement, for he leaned out of it with loud ejaculations of interest and delight. Then he rushed down the stair, out through the open window, threw himself upon his face on the lawn, sprang up and into the room once more, all with the energy of the hunter who was at the very heels of his quarry. The lamp, which was an extraordinary standard, he examined with minute care, "'making certain measurements upon its bowl. "'He carefully scrutinized with his lens "'the talc shield which covered the top of the chimney "'and scraped off some ashes which adhered to its upper surface, "'putting some of them into an envelope, "'which he placed in his pocketbook. "'Finally, just as the doctor and the official police "'put in an appearance, he beckoned to the vicar, "'and we all three went out upon the lawn. "'I am glad to say that my investigation "'has not been entirely barren,' he remarked. "'I cannot remain to discuss the matter with the police, but I should be exceedingly obliged, Mr. Roundhay, if you would give the inspector my compliments and direct his attention to the bedroom window and to the sitting-room lamp. Each is suggestive, and together they're almost conclusive. If the police would desire further information, I shall be happy to see any of them at the cottage. And now, Watson, I think that, perhaps, we shall be better employed elsewhere." It may be that the police resented the intrusion of an amateur, or that they imagined themselves to be upon some hopeful line of investigation, but it is certain that we heard nothing from them for the next two days. During this time, Holmes spent some of his time smoking and dreaming in the cottage, but a greater portion in country walks which he undertook alone, returning after many hours without remark as to where he had been. One experiment served to show me the line of his investigation. He had bought a lamp, Which was the duplicate of the one which had burned in the room of Mortimer Trigenus on the morning of the tragedy. This he filled with the same oil as that used at the Vicarage, and he carefully timed the period which it would take to be exhausted. Another experiment which he made was of a more unpleasant nature, and one which I am not likely ever to forget. You will remember, Watson, he remarked one afternoon that there is a single common point of resemblance in the varying reports which have reached us. This concerns the effect of the atmosphere of the room in each case upon those who had first entered it. You will recollect that Mortimer Tregenis, in describing the episode of his last visit to his brother's house, remarked that the doctor on entering the room fell into a chair. You had forgotten? Well, I can answer for it, that it was so. Now... You will remember also that Mrs. Porter, the housekeeper, told us that she herself fainted upon entering the room and had afterwards opened the window. In the second case, that of Mortimer Trajanus himself, you cannot have forgotten the horrible stuffiness of the room when we arrived, though the servant had thrown open the window. That servant, I found upon inquiry, was so ill that she had gone to her bed. You will admit, Watson, that these facts are very suggestive, In each case, there is evidence of a poisonous atmosphere. In each case, also, there is combustion going on in the room. In one case, a fire. In the other, a lamp. The fire was needed, but the lamp was lit. As a comparison of the oil consumed will show, long after it was broad daylight. Why? Surely because there is some connection between three things. The burning, the stuffy atmosphere and finally, the madness or death of these unfortunate people. That is clear, is it not? It would appear so. At least we may accept it as a working hypothesis. We will suppose, then, that something was burned in each case which produced an atmosphere causing strange toxic effects. Very good. In the first instance, that of the Trajanus family, this substance was placed in the fire. Now the window was shut, but the fire would naturally carry fumes to some extent up the chimney. Hence, one would expect the effects of the poison to be less than in the second case, when there was less escape for the vapor. The result seems to indicate that it was so, since in the first case, only the woman, who had presumably the more sensitive organism, was killed, the others exhibiting that temporary or permanent lunacy, which is evidently the first effect of the drug. In the second case, the result was complete. The facts, therefore, seemed to bear out the theory of a poison which worked by combustion. With this train of reasoning in my head, I naturally looked about in Mortimer Tregenis' room to find some remains of this substance. The obvious place to look was the talc shelf, or smoke guard of the lamp. There, sure enough, I perceived a number of flaky ashes, and round the edges a fringe of brownish powder, which had not yet been consumed. Half of this I took, as you saw. "'and I placed it in an envelope. "'Why half, Holmes? "'It is not for me, my dear Watson, "'to stand in the way of the official police force. "'I leave them all the evidence which I found. "'The poison still remained upon the talc, "'had they the wit to find it. "'Now, Watson, we will light our lamp. "'We will, however, take the precaution to open our window "'to avoid the premature decease "'of two deserving members of society.' "'and you will seat yourself near that open window in an armchair, "'unless, like a sensible man, you determine to have nothing to do with the affair. "'Oh, you will see it out, will you? "'I thought I knew my Watson. "'This chair I will place opposite yours "'so that we may be the same distance from the poison and face to face. "'The door we will leave ajar. "'Each is now in a position to watch the other "'and to bring the experiment to an end "'should the symptoms seem alarming. "'Is that all clear?' "'Well, then, I take our powder, or what remains of it, from an envelope, "'and I lay it above the burning lamp. "'So, now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments.' "'They were not long in coming. "'I had hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odor, "'subtle and nauseous. "'At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond all control.' A thick, black cloud swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that in this cloud, unseen as yet, but about to spring out upon my appalled senses, lurked all that was vaguely horrible, all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. Vague shapes swirled and swam amid the dark cloud bank, each a menace and a warning of something coming, the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold, whose very shadow, would blast my soul. A freezing horror took possession of me. I felt that my hair was rising, that my eyes were protruding, that my mouth was opened, and my tongue like leather. The turmoil within my brain was such that something must surely snap. I tried to scream, and was vaguely aware of some hoarse croak which was my own voice, but distant and detached from myself. At the same moment, in some effort of escape, I broke through that cloud of despair and had a glimpse of Holmes's face, white, rigid, and drawn with horror, the very look which I had seen upon the features of the dead. It was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength. I dashed from my chair, threw my arms around Holmes, and together we lurched through the door, and an instant afterwards had thrown ourselves down upon the grass plot and were lying side by side. "'conscious only of the glorious sunshine "'which was bursting its way "'through the hellish cloud of terror "'which had girt us in. "'Slowly it rose from our souls "'like the mists from a landscape "'until peace and reason had returned, "'and we were sitting upon the grass, "'wiping our clammy foreheads "'and looking with apprehension at each other "'to mark the last traces "'of that terrific experience "'which we had undergone. "'Upon my word, Watson!' said Holmes, at last, with an unsteady voice. I owe you both my thanks and an apology. It was an unjustifiable experiment, even for oneself, and doubly so for a friend. I am really very sorry. You know, I answered, with some emotion, for I have never seen so much of Holmes's heart before, that it is my greatest joy and privilege to serve you. He relapsed at once into the half-humorous, half-cynical vein which was his habitual attitude to those about him. "'It would be superfluous to drive us mad, my dear Watson,' said he. "'A casual observer would certainly declare that we were so already before we embarked upon so wild an experiment. I confess that I never imagined that the effect would be so sudden and so severe.' He dashed into the cottage, and— "'Reappearing with the burning lamp held at full arm's length, "'he threw it among a bank of brambles. "'We must give the room a little time to clear. "'I take it, Watson, that you have no longer a shadow of a doubt "'as to how these tragedies were produced?' "'None whatsoever. "'But the cause remains as obscure as before. "'Come into the arbor here and let us discuss it together. "'That villainous stuff seems to still linger around my throat. "'I think we must admit—' that all the evidence points to this man, Mortimer Tregenis, having been the criminal in the first tragedy, although he was the victim in the second one. We must remember, in the first place, that there is some story of a family quarrel followed by a reconciliation. How bitter that quarrel may have been, or how hollow the reconciliation, we cannot tell. When I think of Mortimer Tregenis, with the foxy face and the small, shrewd, beady eyes behind the spectacles, He is not a man whom I should judge to be of particularly forgiving disposition. Well, in the next place, you'll remember that this idea of someone moving in the garden, which took our attention for a moment from the real cause of the tragedy, emanated from him. He had a motive in misleading us. Finally, if he did not throw the substance into the fire at the moment of leaving the room, who did do so? The affair happened immediately after his departure. Had anyone else come in, the family would certainly have risen from the table. Besides, in peaceful Cornwall, visitors did not arrive after ten o'clock at night. We may take it, then, that all the evidence points to Mortimer Trajanus as the culprit. Then his own death was a suicide? Well, Watson, it is on the face of it not impossible supposition— THE MAN WHO HAD THE GUILT UPON HIS SOUL OF HAVING BROUGHT SUCH A FATE UPON HIS OWN FAMILY MIGHT WELL BE DRIVEN BY REMORSE TO INFLICT IT UPON HIMSELF. THERE ARE, HOWEVER, SOME COGENT REASONS AGAINST IT. FORTUNATELY, THERE IS ONE MAN IN ENGLAND WHO KNOWS ALL ABOUT IT, AND I HAVE MADE ARRANGEMENTS BY WHICH WE SHALL HEAR THE FACTS THIS AFTERNOON FROM HIS OWN LIPS. AH! HE IS A LITTLE BEFORE HIS TIME. PERHAPS YOU WOULD KINDLY STEP THIS WAY, DR. LEON STERNDALE. "'We've been conducting a chemical experiment indoors "'which has left our little room hardly fit for the reception "'of so distinguished a visitor.' "'I heard the click of the garden gate, "'and now the majestic figure of the great African explorer "'appeared upon the path. "'He turned in some surprise toward the rustic arbor in which we sat. "'You said for me, Mr. Holmes, "'I had your note about an hour ago, and I have come, "'though I really do not know why I should obey your summons.' "'Well, perhaps we can clear the point up before we separate,' said Holmes. "'Meanwhile, I am much obliged to you for your courteous acquiescence. "'You will excuse this informal reception in the open air, "'but my friend Watson and I have nearly furnished an additional chapter "'to what the papers call the Cornish Horror, "'and we prefer a clear atmosphere for the present. "'Perhaps, since the matters which we have to discuss "'will affect you personally in a very intimate fashion,' "'It is as well that we should talk "'where there can be no eavesdropping.' "'The explorer took his cigar from his lips "'and gazed sternly at my companion. "'I'm at a loss to know, sir,' he said, "'what you can have to speak about "'which affects me personally in a very intimate fashion, "'as you say. "'The killing of Mortimer Trajanus," said Holmes. "'For a moment I wished that I were armed.' "'Sterndale's fierce face turned to a dusky red, "'his eyes glared, and the knotted, passionate veins "'started out in his forehead, "'while he sprang forward with clenched hands "'toward my companion. "'Then he stopped, and with a violent effort "'he resumed a cold, rigid calmness, "'which was, perhaps, more suggestive of danger "'than his hot-headed outburst. "'I have lived so long among savages and beyond the law,' "'said he, that I have got into the way "'of being a law to myself.' "'You could do well, Holmes, not to forget it, "'for I have no desire to do you an injury.' "'Nor have I any desire to do you an injury, Dr. Sterndale. "'Surely the clearest proof of it is that, "'knowing what I know, I have sent for you and not the police.' "'Sterndale sat down with a gasp, "'overawed for, perhaps, the first time in his adventurous life. "'There was a calm assurance of power in Holmes's manner,' which could not be withstood. Our visitor stammered for a moment, his great hands opening and shutting in his agitation. "'What do you mean?' he asked at last. "'If this is bluff upon your part, Mr. Holmes, you have chosen a bad man for your experiment. Let us have no more beating about the bush. What do you mean?' "'I will tell you,' said Holmes. "'And the reason why I tell you is that I hope frankness may beget frankness.' "'What my next step may be will depend entirely "'upon the nature of your own defense.' "'My defense?' "'Yes, sir.' "'My defense against what?' "'Against the charge of killing Mortimer Trigenus. "'Sterndale mopped his forehead with his handkerchief. "'Upon my word, you are getting on,' said he. "'Do all your successes depend upon this prodigious power of bluff?' "'The bluff!' said Holmes sternly, "Is upon your side, Dr. Leon Sterndale, and not upon mine. As a proof, I will tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. Of your return from Plymouth, allowing much of your property to go on to Africa, I will say nothing save that it first informed me that you were one of the factors which had to be taken into account in reconstructing this drama.' "'I came back,' I have heard your reasons and regard them as unconvincing and inadequate. We will pass that. You came down here to ask me whom I suspected. I refused to answer you. You then went to the vicarage, waited outside it for some time, and finally returned to your cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That is what you may expect to see when I follow you. You spent a restless night at your cottage, and you formed certain plans, which in the early morning you proceeded to put into execution. Leaving your door just as day was breaking, you filled your pocket with some reddish gravel that was lying heaped beside your gate. Sterndale gave a violent start and looked at Holmes in amazement. You then walked swiftly for the mile which separated you from the vicarage. You were wearing, I may remark, the same pair of ribbed tennis shoes which are at the present moment upon your feet. At the vicarage you passed through the orchard and the side hedge, coming out under the window of the lodger Trajanus. It is now daylight, but the household was not yet stirring. You drew some of the gravel from your pocket, and you threw it up at the window above you. Sterndale sprang to his feet. I believe that you are the devil himself, he cried. Holmes smiled at the compliment. It took two or possibly three handfuls before the lodger came to the window. You beckoned him to come down. He dressed hurriedly and descended to his sitting room. You entered by the window. There was an interview, a short one, during which you walked up and down the room. Then you passed out and closed the window, standing on the lawn outside, smoking a cigar and watching what occurred. Finally, after the death of Trajanus. "'You withdrew as you had come. "'Now, Dr. Sterndale, how do you justify such conduct, "'and what were the motives for your actions? "'If you prevaricate or trifle with me, "'I give you my assurance that the matter "'will pass out of my hands forever.' "'Our visitor's face had turned ashen gray "'as he listened to the words of his accuser. "'Now he sat for some time in thought, "'with his face sunk in his hands.' Then, with a sudden, impulsive gesture, he plucked a photograph from his breast pocket and threw it on the rustic table before us. "'That is why I have done it,' said he. It showed the bust and face of a very beautiful woman. Holmes stooped over it. "'Brenda Tragenis,' said he. "'Yes, Brenda Tragenis,' repeated our visitor. "'For years I have loved her. For years she has loved me.' "'There is the secret of that Cornish seclusion "'which people have marvelled at. "'It has brought me close to the one thing on earth "'that was dear to me. "'I could not marry her, "'for I have a wife who has left me for years, "'and yet whom, by the deplorable laws of England, "'I could not divorce. "'For years Brenda waited. "'For years I waited. "'And this is what we have waited for.' "'A terrible sob shook his great frame, "'and he clutched his throat under his brindled beard. "'Then, with an effort, he mastered himself.' "'and spoke on. "'The vicar knew. "'He was in our confidence. "'He would tell you that she was an angel upon earth. "'That was why he telegraphed to me, and I returned. "'What was my baggage or Africa to me "'when I learned that such a fate had come upon my darling? "'There you have the missing clue to my action, Mr. Holmes.' "'Proceed,' said my friend. "'Dr. Sterndale drew from his pocket a paper packet "'and laid it upon the table.' On the outside was written, Radix Pettis Diaboli, with a red poison label beneath it. He pushed it towards me. "'I understand that you are a doctor, sir. Have you ever heard of this preparation?' "'Devil's foot root? No, I never heard of it.' "'It is no reflection upon your professional knowledge,' said he, "'for I believe that, save for one sample in a laboratory at Buda, "'there is no other specimen in Europe.' It has not yet found its way either into the pharmacopoeia or into the literature of toxicology. The root is shaped like a foot, half-human, half-goat-like, hence the fanciful name given by a botanical missionary. It is used as an ordeal poison by the medicine men in certain districts of West Africa and is kept as a secret among them. This particular specimen I obtained under very extraordinary circumstances in the Ubengi country. He opened the paper as he spoke, and disclosed a heap of reddish-brown, snuff-like powder. "'Well, sir?' asked Holmes sternly. "'I'm about to tell you, Mr. Holmes, all that actually occurred, for you already know so much that it is clearly to my interest that you should know all. I have already explained the relationship in which I stood to the Drogenus family. For the sake of the sister, I was friendly with the brothers. There was a family quarrel about money which estranged this man Mortimer.' but it was supposed to be made up, and afterwards met him as I did the others. He was a sly, subtle, scheming man, and several things arose which gave me a suspicion of him, but I had no cause for any positive quarrel. One day, only a couple of weeks ago, he came down to my cottage, and I showed him some of my African curiosities. Among other things, I exhibited this powder, and I told him of its strange properties— how it stimulates those brain centers which control the emotion of fear, and how either madness or death is the fate of the unhappy native who is subjected to the ordeal by the priest of his tribe. I told him also how powerless European science would be to detect it. How he took it I cannot say, for I never left the room, but there is no doubt that it was then, while I was opening cabinets and stooping to boxes, that he managed to abstract some of the devil's foot root. I well remember how he plied me with questions as to the amount and the time that was needed for its effect, but I little dreamed that he could have a personal reason for asking. I thought no more of the matter until the vicar's telegram reached me at Plymouth. This villain had thought that I would be at sea before the news could reach me, and that I should be lost for years in Africa. But I returned at once. Of course, I could not listen to the details without feeling assured that my poison had been used. "'I came round to see you on the chance "'that some other explanation had suggested itself to you. "'But there could be none. "'I was convinced that Mortimer Tregenis was the murderer, "'that for the sake of money, "'and with the idea, perhaps, "'that if the other members of his family were all insane, "'he would be the sole guardian of their joint property. "'He had used the devil's foot-powder upon them, "'driven two of them out of their senses, "'and killed his sister Brenda, "'the one human being whom I have ever loved.' "'or who has ever loved me. "'There was his crime. "'What was to be his punishment? "'Should I appeal to the law? "'What were my proofs? "'I knew that the facts were true, "'but could I help to make a jury of countrymen "'believe so fantastic a story? "'I might, or I might not. "'But I could not afford to fail. "'My soul cried out for revenge. "'I have said to you once before, Mr. Holmes, "'that I have spent much of my life outside the law.' and that I have come at last to be a law to myself. So it was even now. I determined that the fate which he had given to others should be shared by himself. Either that, or I would do the justice upon him with my own hand. In all England there can be no man who sets less value upon his own life than I do at the present moment. Now I have told you all. You have yourself supplied the rest. I did, as you say, after a restless night. "'set off early from my cottage. "'I foresaw the difficulty of arousing him, "'so I gathered some gravel from the pile which you have mentioned, "'and I used it to throw up to his window. "'He came down and admitted me through the window of the sitting-room. "'I laid his offense before him. "'I told him that I had come both as judge and executioner. "'The wretch sank into a chair, paralyzed at the sight of my revolver. "'I lit the lamp, put the powder above it, and stood outside the window.' ready to carry my threat to shoot him should he try to leave the room. In five minutes he died. My God, how he died! But my heart was flint, for he endured nothing which my innocent darling had not felt before him. There is my story, Mr. Holmes. Perhaps if you loved a woman, you would have done as much yourself. At any rate, I am in your hands. You can take what steps you like. As I have already said, There's no man living who can fear death less than I do. Holmes sat for some little time in silence. What were your plans? He asked at last. I've intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work there is but half finished. And go and do the other half, said Holmes. I, at least, am not prepared to prevent you. "'Dr. Sterndale raised his giant figure, bowed gravely, and walked from the arbor. "'Holmes lit his pipe and handed me his pouch. "'Some fumes which are not poisonous would be a welcome change,' said he. "'I think you must agree, Watson, that it is not a case in which we are called upon to interfere. "'Our investigation has been independent, and our action shall be so also. "'You would not denounce the man?' "'Certainly not,' I answered. "'I have never loved Watson, but if I did, and the woman I loved had met such an end, I might act even as our lawless lion-hunter has done. Who knows? "'Well, Watson, I will not offend your intelligence by explaining what is obvious. The gravel upon the window-sill was, of course, the starting point of my research. It was unlike anything in the vicarage garden.' "'Only when my attention had been drawn to Dr. Sterndale and his cottage "'did I find its counterpart. "'The lamp shining in broad daylight and the remains of powder upon the shield "'were successive links in a fairly obvious chain. "'And now, my dear Watson, I think we may dismiss the matter from our minds "'and go back with a clear conscience to the study of those Chaldean roots "'which are surely to be traced in the Cornish branch of the great Celtic speech.' Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We obviously decided to give you the whole conclusion to The Adventure of the Devil's Foot in one episode, and we hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for lots more episodes for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and keep sending us these great reviews. Here are a few recent ones. Wonderful, by Now You Listen, 5 stars. Great intro music, sound effects, and expert storytelling. And this one. Great Show by Mark and Val, five stars. My very favorite podcast, Keep Them Coming. And this one, Great Stories by Cahaba Bomb, rating five stars. This guy is great. He has the perfect voice for telling classic stories. Thank you all very, very much. We'll see you next week, same place, same time. Sunday nights, 8 p.m., 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, wherever great podcasts are found. And at www.1001classicshortstories.com.